Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Obedient, we are looking at why being rooted in Christ brings about the blessing of fruitful living. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. So, you know, Didi talks about this benevolent distortion thing. And one of the the, the serious premise of that, you know, aside from mocking me, was this, this idea that we have a tendency toward benevolent distortion for other people, for other situations in life, and yet we have a tendency to not give God the benefit of the doubt. We tend to not be optimistically loving to God all the time. And so as we transition to the final chapter of First Timothy, which, you know, this series, Obedient, has basically been a trek through what we call the pastoral epistles traditionally. It's First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. As we get into this last chapter, we get a look at just how challenging it really is for Paul to encourage Timothy and, and by extension for Timothy to encourage the Ephesian church toward this sort of love for God as first priority. And, and I, I think as we get into chapter six this week that we're gonna see that what Paul lays out in chapter six ends up being the biggest challenge of the entire letter. But in order to set that up, I wanted to show you something this morning and then tell you a story after that. And you know, Dee Dee showed me this, or told me about a video from Rick Steves. And I, I'm, a, I'm a PBS guy. I'm a dork. And I like Rick Steves Europe. I always love the idea of, oh man, I want to go there. I want to go there. And I didn't know that I guess when Rick Steves did his episode on Turkey, he went to Ephesus. And so there's this clip where he talks about the, the background of Ephesus with a, a lady that he's kind of interviewing. And they say a few things that I think not only uh, bring back the background that Dee Dee has shared over the last five weeks, but he also sets it up in a way that brings us right into the context of the sixth chapter of First Timothy. So I want you to see this short little clip from Rick Steves and just listen to what they say about Ephesus. Ephesus blossomed as a Greek city in about the fourth century BC. It was later consumed by the expanding Roman Empire and eventually became a major Roman city. Huge city, quarter of a million people. This was one of the biggest metropolises of the Roman period. Now we're in the downtown and the main street of the city, but the city expanded beyond this main street on both sides. So way up to the mountain, actually. On both directions, way up to the wow. mountains, and housed 250,000 people. All the city was plumbed. Right underneath us, there was a huge sewer, and there were clay pipes at either side of the street, taking fresh water to the baths and the fountains. Wow. So they had aqueducts coming in and powering the whole city. The terrace houses stretch up from the city's main drag. These excavations are incredibly complex, like piecing together an enormous puzzle. The fragments are so delicate, the ongoing work is protected under a roof. The terrace houses give us a particularly intimate look at Ephesian life 2,000 years ago. Now, how many families would, would have lived in this zone right here? Only five. Just five? Five families, and these were huge houses. This must have been the elite of Ephesus. Ultra, ultra rich, not only for Ephesus, but among the riches of the world lived in these houses. So when you walk through here, can you imagine what it would be like to live at that time? Sort of. It was very luxurious living in these houses. All houses were arranged around an atrium, so they had a courtyard with rooms all around, which were richly decorated with art on two or three floors. 
They were very luxurious. See, what we find out when we look back at the archaeological remains and get into the history of the city is that Ephesus stood tall above the other cities under the Roman Empire in terms of wealth, extravagance, and just being a people of haves. They have in comparison to the have-nots. <clears throat> this lady points out in, their, in this interview that they've got you know, water distribution systems that far surpassed uh, those that were present and prevalent in the, in the uh, other cities around. And they show you this, um, this mansion, this big housing area. And I, you know, when I watched this video, I was reflecting on being in Israel and in Palestine at the beginning of the year. And when we saw the, the place of Capernaum where Peter uh, you know, lived, and you see that the housing and, and just the small nature of the homes, and then you reflect on how many families uh, would have lived in these homes. I mean, people were packed in on and around everybody in these times, and yet you look at a place like Ephesus that has a mansion complex bigger than anything we saw in the remains in uh, these Jewish settlements from the first century, and yet this lady says only five families lived in there. That's why she can say they lived this luxurious life. And so with that backdrop, I started thinking about this story of Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And I'd encourage you to read it, but I wanna, I wanna tell you the story of what happens. Because it's kind of about Paul, but he's just more on the peripheral but it's his work that, that comes front and center. So Paul has been in Ephesus with his companions and he's been sharing the gospel story. And it's starting to take root. It's captured people. People are starting to join what was called the way. That's what they called it at first. The early Christian movement. It was starting to spread. And what we see in Ephesus is in and around the Colosseum, there's this guy named Demetrius and the text tells us that he's a silversmith. And what he makes are these silver shrines devoted to the goddess Artemis. And if you've been following with Didi this, this whole month, you know that Artemis was a big deal to the Ephesians. She was the goddess of the Ephesians. And in this culture, in this culture, religion, social customs, economic means, all those things were, were tied in together. There was no separation or compartmentalization of anything. You had to kind of embrace the whole culture to make it. And so you've got this guy, Demetrius, he's a silversmith. He's making money off of the goddess Artemis. It's his livelihood. But what we find out in Acts 19 is he gets all of the other craftsmen together. And he starts a riot. Well, not really a riot. A commotion. A frenzy of people. It's a frenzy of people that are upset with the work of Paul. Because what's happening, the text tells us, is that the gospel's taking root in people's lives. They're abandoning the worship of Artemis. And guess what? If you don't need Artemis anymore, you definitely don't need a little icon or a little statue or whatever it is that these guys are selling. 
And this guy's saying, hey guys, we need to come together. This Paul and his way, they're driving business away. And then he says, and worse yet, worse yet, their teaching will one day desecrate the temple of our goddess, Artemis. In fact, during the commotion, they keep saying this phrase, great is Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. They shout it out loud. And so what we find out is that there are two Christians that are companions of Paul, and they apprehend them to punish them. And then Paul and his other friends find out about this. Now, Paul, being daring the way that he is, he wants to go get in the center of it. He wants to take the opportunity of this gathering of people to preach. And they say, no, 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 no. You will get arrested just like the rest of them. So they keep Paul from going into the center of this. But what we do find out is that there's a group of Jewish folks around. One of them is named Alexander. And Alexander is kind of a spokesman of this crowd. And so the rest of the Jewish people kind of push him out to have his say-so in the middle of the commotion. And he doesn't get very far before the crowd starts to shout, Great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. And the text tells us something really interesting. It says that they shout this at this group of Jewish people for two hours straight. I mean, have you ever had a record get stuck on repeat before? It could get really annoying. And think of the pressure if you don't buy into this worship of this goddess. If all of your well-being is tied up in worship of this goddess, the pressure that is now on you by this frenzied group of people. And so Paul can't go near it. And that's kind of that's where the story takes us. And so I was reading that story this week, and, and I immediately just started thinking about the pressure that would be on you if you were a Christian in Ephesus or if you were a leader in the church and you were trying to share faith. And as we go through 1 Timothy and we realize that the main purpose of this letter being written is to snuff out false doctrine, you could understand why false doctrine was so prevalent in this church environment. Because if everything about your life and your being and your success was wrapped up in you being a part of this, And if there was constant pressure being put on you to uphold these ideas and values that were coming from this, well, things that are crazy to us might start to happen. Maybe you're a Jewish person or a a Christian person and you start to adopt some of these Artemis ideas and start to blend them into Christian doctrine And all of a sudden, you've got these people that are professing to be Christians, but they're teaching this really, really wacky stuff. But I'm sure that it was appealing to the powers that be at the time, and so it made it safe to still live and attempt to thrive in that cultural setting. And so it's with that backdrop that we find 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I think Paul saves the biggest challenge to Timothy and the church 
for last in this letter. And it's the challenge of striving for wealth. So I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to read a big section here. But it's really important that we see the whole flow of Paul's teaching to Timothy and what he needs to be teaching the church. And so we start here in the middle of verse 2 with this. He says, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But then he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And then Paul doesn't stop there. He comes back to Timothy and he says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And he concludes with these words to Timothy. He says, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace to you all. Now, here's the thing. There are, there are so many aspects of this passage that we hear in bits and pieces. We hear quoted out of context, or we even hear them misquoted. And some of those things that get, get misquoted are really important for us to grasp what Paul's doing here. 
Paul is not just talking about money to tell people to give. He's doing way more, and he's going way deeper than that. And it actually starts for Paul with this idea, and this is our first fill in the blank. It's this idea that when I pursue one thing, when I pursue one thing, I move away inherently from another. When I pursue one thing, I move away from another. You know, Jesus, Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about this idea of having uh, two masters. He says no one can have two masters. Either they'll love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and turn away from the other. And he concludes by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. See, in this passage, Paul does not say, stop your pursuit of wealth and instead pursue poverty. He doesn't say, stop your pursuit of wealth and pursue generosity. In fact, he will talk about generosity, but it's as an outgrowth of the thing he does say to pursue. But where he starts with is this idea in verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and direction. This is the big quote. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now we've all heard this verse before, right? But we often hear it misquoted. We often hear just something like, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul says. In fact, he's going to come back around and say something about those that are rich. He doesn't condemn being rich. He actually is condemning the love of money, the striving after wealth. Because in doing that, in going after those worldly things, that material gain, that social status, what you have to do to get there will take you off of the path toward godliness. Because remember, everything that you could attempt to go after in life in this culture was tethered to religion and politics and just the ways of doing life. You can't chase after one thing and not end up leading yourself down the path of everything that comes with what you are chasing. And so what Paul ends up setting up for us is this dichotomy. Don't pursue wealth, but instead pursue God. Don't pursue the social status and keeping up with the Ephesian Joneses Pursue godliness and righteousness and contentment. Now, he not only doesn't say that money itself is evil, but he also doesn't condemn people that have a status of being rich. It's actually interesting. When you look up the word in verse 7 um, for uh, 
people that are trying to gain riches, it actually, the, the Greek word actually has something to do with uh, relativity of wealth. So it isn't just that, that this person's trying to be rich, but rich relative to others. It's this idea of I need to be ahead of the class. It's this idea of I don't have enough. He actually never says anything is wrong with actually being rich. In fact, he makes some remarks about people that do have stuff. But what he tells them to do is to not get big-headed about what they have and to not put their hope in what they have. Because as he says, it's fleeting. It's so uncertain. It's here today and gone tomorrow. You entered into the world without it and you will leave without it. So why put your hope in something so fleeting? And yet, in the world of Ephesus, that's all anybody could really go after. But that's why in our bulletins here that we have this idea that when I pursue God, I become more like Jesus in both who I am and in what I do. If I pursue God, it changes us. So as I just said a second ago, this idea of generosity isn't something that we go after. It ends up becoming a result of what we become when we pursue God. Generosity is an outgrowth of the godliness that we go after. And I love what Rick was saying this morning about communion. He, he pointed the reality that God is the one that pursues us first. It isn't that that we pursue God because, because we're anything. We needed God to pursue us first to open the way to get to him. And he did that through his son, Jesus. At the cross, Jesus died for our sins, but he was raised on the third day, giving us life to the full. And what that means is that with Jesus, we can become more godly in life as we go about life. And it changes who we are on the inside and ends up reflecting on the outside. So we start to see things through God's eyes and not our own anymore. And that's the hard part about this teaching for Timothy. It's that pressure thing. See, I don't think anybody in the room today um, is trying to worship Artemis. Does anybody in here have an Artemis statue? I'm kidding. If you do, we'll talk later. I'd like to see it. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, the truth is, though, is that we do have the pressures of life. It's very easy to stop the pursuit of godliness and turn our attention toward the pursuit of other things. And maybe it's not even the pursuit of wealth at all. Maybe it's just the pursuit of safety or just getting by. You know, maybe you're at a job and the pressure's on you and it's been on you for a long time. And so that temptation to turn away from what is godly and to fudge the numbers here 
or cut the corners there, just creeps in just so you can make it through the day. And here's the other thing, too, about this passage is, you know, we've all heard the stories, and there's nothing wrong with these stories. I'm really glad this happens for people sometimes. But, you know, I've heard the story where, you know, the friend's like, you know, I, I used to not give, and then all of a sudden I started giving 10%, and then all of a sudden $500 showed up at my doorstep. That's really great that that happened, but I can give you five other instances where the 500 didn't show up. Because God never promises that. I was watching a video this week, and this guy talked about this idea of our approach to God as being transactional. We have a transactional view of God. It goes like this. It's as simple as this. It's, it's if I do this, God will do that for me. In fact, we take that so far as to say, if things are going wrong in life, we immediately jump to the conclusion that we've stepped out of line or we've made God angry in some way. My friends, I'll tell you this, that's not the gospel. That isn't the gospel at all. It's not the one that Paul preaches and it's not the one we preach here. Yet it's so easy to fall into that line of thinking that God is transactional and that we just got to try harder, work harder, do better, do more. No, God did everything that we need. And that ultimately is the best part of this passage. It's the beauty of this passage. It's what I want, I want to close this out with today. You see, we, we see this call for Timothy and the Ephesian church to pursue God rather than wealth. And yeah, there's implications. When you follow God, he's gonna mess with your stuff. And that includes our money. But that's not the beauty of the passage. The beauty of the passage starts at about verse 13 and goes through verse 16. And it's one of the sections that we tend, we read this section and we're always looking for that transactional, well, God, what do you want me to do? Oh, I need to be generous, okay. What do you want me to do? Oh, I need to, no, no, no. Don't gloss over this part. This is what, Paul says to encourage Timothy in pursuit of God. He says, in the sight of God, comma. So he's going to describe God. And he says, who gives life to everything. Hear those words new this morning. Think, pretend, put yourself in the sandals of an Ephesian person, an Ephesian Christian maybe. Does Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians, Give life to everything? Nope. She's just a silver statue. Does your pursuit of wealth give life to you and to everything around you? No. But do you know who does? God. He jumps down here in verse 15 and he says, God the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Is the great Artemis of the Ephesians the king of kings, or queen of queens, I guess, and lord of lords? No. Is the president of the United States the king of kings and lord of lords? No. 
No. The Lord God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Who alone is immortal? Oh, this is a beautiful section here. Not only do we recognize, okay, that's a theological statement about God. He's immortal. But remember what Paul has said. Don't put your, your hope in the things that perish, that you did not enter into the world with and that you cannot take away. But put your hope in God who is what? Immortal. The riches are fleeting. God is not. He continues on, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. He's not a statue. He's not some goddess that people have to put pressure on people to continue to sell. He is too big for that and he's too good. See, that's the beauty of the pursuit of God is this. When you pursue God, you don't get wealth, you don't get stuff, you don't get the immediate fix. What you get is God. And when you really step back and look at how big and wonderful and awesome and great and powerful God is and how loving he is. Why on earth would we pursue anything else? Please pray with me. God, I thank you for the message of First Timothy. I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that I know in our, in our world of just trying to make it through the day and just make it through whatever it is that we're dealing with, that it's easy to look for the quick fixes, to buckle under the pressure, or even to turn you more into an ATM than the God of all creation. But God, I thank you for this message from Paul to Timothy and for the Ephesians and for us because I recognize the fact that what we get when we pursue you is you. And you're more than enough. And I know personally that I'm guilty of not seeing things that way. And I can guarantee that I have friends in this room that don't see things that way all the time anyway because it's so easy to lose the forest with the trees. And so God, I just pray that you will help stir in our hearts the desire to respond to your grace through your son Jesus by pursuing you. Just the pursuit of you. And that we will yield to whatever it is that you do uh, in us in that pursuit and that you will help us to see through your eyes so that we recognize the opportunities where we can be generous, where we recognize the opportunities where we can share our faith with the world around us. And in doing so, God, I pray that you will help us each individually to continue to grow in you, but I also pray, God, that in our witness, in our example, in the same way you called Timothy to be an example, that we will be an example so that we shine a light to the world around us so that the world can know that Jesus is king and he's all that we need. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.